Yes. Pat Waters was a white Georgia journalist who was assigned to cover the civil rights movement work in Albany, Georgia. It changed him. It changed him. It challenged him. And he went on to work for the Southern Regional Council, which worked on just issues of racial justice in the 1950s and 60s, and wrote this book, Down to Now. If life in America were reasonably satisfactory for most of the inhabitants of the country, if the life of the world were not threatened by aspects of American culture and its self-imposed limitations of change, then maybe I would not attach so much importance to what I think I saw and felt afoot in the Southern movement. I would not be so anguished because what was there is seldom expressed now. Would not feel this compulsion to go back in memory and time and old spent notebooks, trying to find what was there in precise terms, coherent abstraction trying, I guess, to find salvation. And that, after all, on the most forthright level, was what the movement offered. And America missed. So. Think back four or five months. There was huge angst in most segments of society, of every political stripe, every income level, every gender identity, any ethnic category. We Americans were not then a happy, upbeat, cooperative bunch. We often spoke to each other at the top of our lungs and very often talked right past each other. Those of us who identify some size, way, shape, or form as progressive or liberal talked about living in a harsh, threatening, repressive social and political atmosphere. And then we got COVID-19 layered on top of everything else. And that being insufficiently uh, stressful, the deaths of Amont Arbery, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Toby McDade, and many others have activated and agitated people of conscience. We may be tempted to say, it's too hard, I can't do this. Is there an appropriate religious response to this sense of malaise? Is there a precedent? for how to deal with this sense of dread, this reality of way too much bad news. In this hellish emotional landscape, I'd suggest what we need is salvation. Not a go somewhere when you're dead salvation, but a this worldly, even secular salvation a movement 
toward a healthier society. We 21st century Unitarian Universalists don't talk much about salvation, but maybe we should start talking about it more. We should remember that salvation comes from the same Latin root word as salve, an ointment to put on a wound to help it heal. Salvation can be understood to mean movement toward greater health, greater wholeness. Early in the last century, a Universalist minister was debating a Baptist minister in Mississippi. The Universalist said in the course of that debate, I do not want people to think that Universalism teaches that salvation is going somewhere. It doesn't make any difference where I go. It is what I am. So in that part of our Universalist salvation, uh, Universalist heritage, we have some precedent to think about a this-worldly salvation, a this-worldly movement toward personal and social health and wholeness. And this morning, I'll be suggesting that here in America, we have a historic precedent for the sort of movement that can strive toward greater social and personal health and wholeness. Ever since people from the African continent were first involuntarily brought to North America, they've been engaged in the struggle to make a way out of no way. They've been seeking justice, hungering for liberty, striving for some degree of health, working to create a society that affirms and supports their human worth and possibility. As Brian mentioned, I had the good fortune as a young minister to take part in an early phase of the Selma, Alabama voting rights campaign. My presence didn't have a discernible effect on the results of that campaign, but it certainly had an effect on me. Then from 1969 through 1984, I served as the only Unitarian Universalist minister in Mississippi. During those years in Mississippi, I began the research that led to writing Southern Witness. And most recently, my wife Judy and I have been among the founders of the Living Legacy Project which has been taking people on civil rights pilgrimages to Alabama and Mississippi. Now, during the pandemic, Living Legacy Project is doing online programs. I've learned in the course of all this a lot about what history books call the civil rights movement and what most participants in it tend to call the freedom movement or just the movement. As we think about how we might move now toward a healthier, saner society, I want to share some stories of people, events, and outlooks from the freedom movement. I think they suggest some of the efforts we need to make today, some of the outlooks and stances we need to adopt. James Cheney was one of three civil rights workers murdered by the Klan in 1964 at the very start of Freedom Summer in Mississippi. Early in this century, as the Klan leader who had organized that killing was finally about to go on trial for murder, 
our pilgrimage group got to meet Angela Lewis. Angela was 10 days old when her father, James Cheney, was murdered. James Cheney never saw his daughter. Angela grew up without a father. And for many years, her mother thought it was too dangerous in Meridian, Mississippi to be the daughter of James Cheney. And so Angela th thinks that she was 10 or 12 before her mother made it clear. James Cheney was her father. But she knows that now. And she understands the mission her father had as a Mississippi-born black civil rights worker. She embraces the process of confronting evil with nonviolence. She told us that it would be hard on her, hard on her mother, hard on James Cheney's mother, to attend and watch the trial of Preacher Killen, the Klan leader. She said, please pray for us because it will be hard, but pray for him too, because he also is a human being. We Unitarian Universalists affirm the inherent worth and dignity of every person, but we may need to take that affirmation more deeply into our beliefs and actions if we're to emulate the radical, challenging love that James Cheney lived and his daughter Angela still lives. Walking with the sense of one's, one's own inherent worth and dignity is important in confronting evil. But it's important to know that even the evildoer under, under a veneer of wrong is possessed of worth and dignity. That we need to try to help them find. On one of our earliest pilgrimages, we got to meet Spencer Hogue who had a 45 or 50 or more years of civic and civil inv rights involvement. At the time we met Mr. Hogue, he was serving on the Marion, Alabama City Council with the title of Mayor Pro Tem. He told our group about how during the movement years, he and his wife would go every week to that week's mass meeting. He explained that each week they would get out the important family papers and put them on top of the bureau. He said he would tell his, his oldest son, who was about 12, now, if your mother and I don't come home tonight, you take the important family papers to the younger children to one of the grandmothers. Going to a civic gathering, think a League of Women Voters meeting with really good music and inspiring speakers. They felt they had to prepare their children for the possibility that they would be arrested or injured or killed. Courage was an indispensable 
outlook day in and day out in the movement. Courage is not an easy virtue, but can grow from one's sense of inherent worth and dignity. We, facing far less physical danger than Mr. Hogue and many thousands of others, darn well need to muster courage. Vernon Damer was a relatively prosperous farmer and small businessman who lived just outside Hattiesburg, Mississippi. He used his relative security and well-being to look out for other African Americans who were not as well off, not as securely located. He was a leader in the local NAACP and a strong advocate for voter registration. He said, if you don't vote, you don't count. In January of 1966, the Ku Klux Klan attacked the Damer House in the middle of the night with gunfire and Molotov cocktails. Last month in the Living Legacy Zoom webinar, we got to hear from Ellie Damer, his widow, about that horrible night. In the course of defending the house, Vernon Damer suffered burns and smoke inhalation, which were fatal to him. Over the course of many years, a couple of the Klansmen involved in the attack repented and sought the Damer's forgiveness. And gave testimony that helped convict other Klansmen in that attack. Finally, in January of this year, a statue of Vernon Damer was erected in front of the Forest County, Mississippi Courthouse. 113 years after Forest County, Mississippi was named for Confederate General and Ku Klux Klan founder, Nathan Bedford Forrest, and 54 years after the Klan killed Vernon Damer, his exemplary citizenship was honored with a statue. And across the base, it says, if you don't vote, you don't count. This can remind us that it's important to take the long view. Immediate results are gratifying and can be very, very important. But sometimes one must think beyond a single year or even a single generation. These days, facing a 24 hours a day news cycle, we too often get ourselves caught up, bent out of shape by today's COVID-19 case report or the most recent tweet, the latest assault on personhood, either verbal or physical. We need to soften our focus on the momentary or transient and in movement terms, keep our eyes on the prize. No one person was ever the whole story of the movement. 
Dr. King, important as he was at times, was never a solo actor. The movement expanded exponentially when college students started sitting in all across the South and in sympathy demonstrations in the North. In Birmingham in 1963, there were relatively few adults who felt they could risk taking part in demonstrations because there was a well-organized system of oppression that could, like that, cost them their home, their job, much that was good in their lives. And so the movement turned to using teenagers. A local disc jockey cooperated by broadcasting messages that the teens would understand, but the authorities had no clue about. Teachers could not, of course, excuse students from class, but many teachers would take a long time writing assignments on the blackboard and ignoring the sounds of students leaving the room to go to that day's demonstration. Secular salvation may demand individual conviction, but it is a collective effort, a creation in the moment of the beloved community envisioned for the future. Seeking change here and now and coping with today's problems, even while holding on to the long view, embracing one's own inherent worth and dignity, possessing essential courage, having allies and co-workers to share the burden, these are all qualities and practices to be encouraged. Those of us who identify as white are not accustomed to living in a social system from which we feel hostility. We're surprised to feel powerless before an invisible adversary. It's abnormal for us to feel repressed, excluded from due process and power. As we currently have these experiences, let's learn from people with a few centuries of background in how to deal with this situation. In particular, let's learn from the time of the movement when black people actively and systematically worked to make a way out of no way. And here's how I know that this can work. The Living Legacy Project had scheduled a pilgrimage to Alabama in November of 2016. As the election results rolled in, The staff members thought, not sure I can follow through with this. They were totally depressed and demoralized. They wondered if any of the registrants would even show up. But people pulled themselves together. All the staff members got themselves to Birmingham. All the registrants showed up, every one of them. And for the next week, they visited sites and people in Alabama and Mississippi. By the time the bus rolled back into Birmingham a week later, 
their chins were up, their shoulders were squared, and they learned from stories of the freedom movement that more was possible than they had believed a week earlier. It goes back to what journalist Pat Waters wrote decades ago about his experience of the civil rights movement. If life in America were reasonably satisfactory for most of the inhabitants of the country, if the life of the world were not threatened by aspects of American culture and its self-imposed limitations of directions of change, then maybe I would not attach so much importance to what I think I saw and felt afoot in the Southern movement. I would not be so anguished because what was expressed there is seldom expressed now. Would not feel this compulsion to go back in memory and time and old spent notebooks, trying to find what was there in precise terms, coherent abstraction, trying, I guess, to find salvation. And that, after all, on the most forthright level, was what the movement offered and America missed. This time around, let's not miss out on salvation a secular salvation of increased societal health. We need it. The world needs us to find it or create it. How we can do this is captured in words of Representative John Lewis. You must be able and prepared to give until you cannot give anymore. We must use our time and space on this little planet that we call Earth to make a lasting contribution, to leave it a little better than we found it. And now that need is greater than ever before. Do not get lost in a sea of despair, Lewis tweeted almost a year ago. Do not become bitter or hostile. Be hopeful. Be optimistic. Never, ever be afraid to make some noise and get in good trouble, necessary trouble. We will find a way to make a way out of no way. Thank you.